You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Hey, good morning, Valleydale. We are in an incredibly beautiful place. We're in the ancient ruins of Philippi. And what you see uh, right down here to my right is uh, the Via Ignatia, or as we call it, the Ignatian Way. This was a road that was about 700 miles long. It was... The road that stretched all the way from one side of Greece, from the Aegean Sea, all the way across to the Adriatic. And then from there, you would take a a ship and you would go uh, to Italy, and then you would get on the Appian Way. Uh, In Paul's day, there was somewhere around 50 thousand miles of paved road. The Romans laid roads everywhere. This is how they could move an army so quickly from one side of the empire to the other. And uh, when you get here to Philippi, you begin to think about its history. The whole place began when some people settled this area and were under constant attack by the folks from up in these mountains. Well, they reached out and they called and they asked for a king to come in and to help them. The king happened to be Philip II, Philip of Macedon, Alexander's father. So he comes here. He says, sure, I'll come and help you. And he came here. He took the place over. He mined the gold out of this place and he named it after himself. And uh, then in about 168 uh, BC, the Romans came here. They fought the Macedonians, defeated them. This is long after the time of Alexander the Great. Uh, They defeated them and they took the area. And this became the city of Philippi uh, that the Romans would settle after the great battle Off in these plains out here, uh, there was the great battle that decided whether Rome would be a republic or an empire. You remember Julius Caesar is uh, murdered. He is assassinated uh, on March the 15th, which becomes the Ides of March. And... uh, um, Brutus and Cassius, who led that whole uh, assassination, they fled to the east. They went to Asia Minor. And there they raised 17 legions and they marched back on this road right here to Philippi. While Octavius, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar and his adopted son, he would become Augustus Caesar. And Mark Anthony bring 18 legions from Rome and they marched from Uh, back to the west, they marched to the east right here. And they met up right here in the plains of Philippi, fought a battle. And of course, Mark Anthony wins the battle. Uh, Cassius and Brutus both uh, commit suicide. Uh, They cut the head of Brutus off and they take it back to Rome and they lay it down at the feet of the statue of Julius Caesar. So that determines the whole world shifts at that moment. Now Rome is that empire. That's decided. And they're going to rule the world. And uh, Mark Anthony retires his veteran soldiers here in this place. This is the Agora. 
So you've moved from the kingdom of Philip of Macedon to the Roman kingdom. And in on this road right here from the east, you remember Paul comes from Troas. He sees the vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so he comes over, comes this way, and he walks into the city on this road, on the Via Ignatia, into the Agora, the marketplace. Now, this was the Agora of Philippi. This is where everybody would come to do business. This is where they would come to buy their goods. This, this was not just the marketplace. This was the information place of, of, the, of the city of Philippi. And that is, they would come here. This was the Facebook of Philippi right here. Uh, they would come to get information, to find out what everybody's doing, to find out what's new, what's going on, what's happening. And it was into this city that Paul comes. Now listen, we've moved from the kingdom of Philip II, Philip of Macedon, to the kingdom of Rome. There will be right here a, a, a temple to Augustus Caesar. Uh, and they will come and they will worship Caesar here. Uh, they worship all of these other pagan gods that are here. And as they come, these kingdoms, the kingdom of Philip, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of Augustus Caesar, now comes this little Jewish man and he is bringing the message of another kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This was the imperial temple uh, in Philippi, and you're in the Roman Agora uh, in this area. This would have had a statue or an altar to Caesar Augustus here. And uh, at least once a year, it was required of everybody to come, offer a pinch of salt uh, in a fire, and say, uh, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And uh, in this place, there were so many different gods that were worshipped. And, and, and you just stop and think, this now, Philip of Macedon has long passed. That kingdom has passed away. The Romans came in 168 B.C. into this area. Then you had, you know, the battle that settled what the then known world was going to be, and that was a Roman empire versus a Roman republic. So you've had kingdoms come and go, and you've got a kingdom now of Rome worshiping Caesar, who was called, if you remember, Julius Caesar was called God. So Augustus Caesar would be known as the son of God. And on the coins that were stamped here, uh, he would imply that he was the savior. And he also had a gospel. Uh, down there on the Bema, they would come out, the magistrates would come out, they would deliver whatever message uh, Caesar had sent to Philippi, and uh, there they gave the euangelion, the good news. So they had all of that, everything. It's amazing to me how deceitful Satan is. He copies everything that God does uh, in order to attract people to himself. So in this place of all of these gods, you've got this powerful God here who proclaims himself to be the God of peace. He has brought Roman peace. And the peace that Rome brings is, is if you don't do what we tell you, squash, you're done. 
little different than the gospel that comes in on this via ignatia. Uh, in the mind and the heart of a little guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. He comes in out of the east, uh, marching down this road to bring the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to this place that had never heard it. So you begin to look and you begin to understand that in this place, you have got a clash of kingdoms. You have got a competition of kingdoms. You have got one man who considers himself to be God, who demands that everybody worship him and declare that he is God. And you have got Paul who comes and brings the good news of Jesus Christ, who is really God. Now, I want to give you two points out of the 16th chapter. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look with me. Uh, all of you at Valleydale, look at the 16th chapter of Acts and all of y'all that are sitting here. And I want you to understand, as he comes down, as Paul comes down this road, uh, God has a road for every one of us to travel uh, to take his message to the world that we live in. That's what Paul was doing. He was just simply taking the message of Jesus Christ to the world that he lived in. And if you ever wonder, does God, uh, is God called me to do that? Every believer God's called to, uh, your, on your life is to take his gospel uh, to the world that you live in. Uh, you have to remember Paul back on the other side of the Aegean in Troas, who catches the vision, sees the vision, has the vision of the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us, come over and help me. Well, what, what he does is this, he comes over to help them spiritually. The greatest way uh, that you could help somebody is spiritually, to bring to them the truth. And uh, he must have been wondering, God had blocked his way to the east, he had blocked his way to the north, and then he opens up the way to the west, and in doing that, Paul must have struggled, uh, as we all struggle. What is God's will for our life? What does God want us to do? And when we understand what God wants us to do, the question is this, well, is, is there a way? Will God prepare a way? Well, this road right here was built and completed in 168 B.C. So by the time Paul shows up here, the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way uh, was at least 200 years old. So 200 years before Paul ever shows up, God could look at Paul and say, I've had it ready for 200 years before you ever got here. I was preparing. It, that's the way God does. He's not going to just send you in somewhere uh, without there being preparation. God had prepared this so that the gospel could come this way. That's part of what I think Paul is talking about in Galatians when he says in the fullness of time, God sent his son. So God sends Paul here. And he sends him to bring this gospel message to a world that is dominated by all of this pagan thought. And as he does, I want you to understand two things. Number one, uh, carrying God's word to this world system brings opposition. So when you come through the book of Acts, what you find is this. Every time you see God move in the book of Acts, you'll see a counter move by Satan. 
You'll just notice that. Now, I could take some time and go through and do that, but we don't have the time to do it. But just notice, and you're going to see this, God now moves the gospel west. It changes all of Western civilization as we know it for the last 2,000 years. So he brings the gospel west. And as he brings the gospel west, Lydia is saved. She gives her life to Christ. All of her household is saved. And now, immediately, if you look in the passage, you've got this little girl, this slave girl, who has a spirit of divination. Puthon is the word in the Greek. Um, it's, it's our word python, which is what you're going to see when we get to Delphi, uh, the spirit of the python, which foretold, they believe, the future. So he's got this little girl that's running around. I'm in verse 16. And she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul um, and us crying out. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed. It's okay. See, it's biblical for a pastor to get annoyed. She kept doing this for many days. Paul became greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command. Now listen, he's full of the Holy Spirit. She's full of the spirit of the devil. And he commands her, saying to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Or in other words, in that instant, the spirit came out of her. Now, he did not, now you say, what's the reason of this? He did not want the spirit of divination to be in the mind of these Greeks when, when he shared with them the spirit of the living God. He wanted them to know there was a dramatic difference between all the spirits that they have worshipped and the, and the God that he's talking about. As I stand here at the threshold of this temple to Caesar, Augustus Caesar. Uh, so in doing that, he's going to face persecution. He's going to face opposition. When her owners saw that their, that their hope was gone, in that, that, that their hope of gain was gone, uh, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. It starts off really um, casting aspersion on their Jewish background. They're Jews. They're disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us. In other words, they're telling us to worship uh, gods that's not lawful for us to worship. Well, my Lord, have mercy. They worshiped everything in the world but Jesus Christ. So, uh, you know, that's the same thing that they got Socrates on. That's why the uh, Areopagites made Socrates go, drink the hemlock because he was teaching, they felt to the young people, uh, a, a religion they did not want to be taught. And so that's what they're using. They're using that same excuse that they're not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. Now they do it right down there. Uh, they do it right there. That's a Bema seat right over there. That's where the magistrates would come out and they would hear um, civil unrest. They would deliver proclamations. They would speak to the people from that Bema seat. That uh, is a picture of the Bema seat that you read about in Revelation, but it was right there. They had these guys that walked around with them called lictors. Uh, in, I believe that's Latin, the lictors. And that's where you get the idea of getting a lick because they carried around these great rods that they would, uh, we would say they would cane people, they would whip people with. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and they whipped 
the backs off of them. When you were whipped with those things, it would cut your flesh. It would dig into the meat of your back. It would strip flesh off. Uh, you were, it, some people died from it, but they whip them right there. They take them and they tell them, throw them in the jail. Now, you were just up there. Uh, you folks at Valleydale, we'll show you a picture of this. The prison where we believe the prison was, he was put back in that prison. Now, you, you have to stop and think about all of this. Our God was talking about this a little bit ago. Why didn't Paul say something? Well, I'm going to come to that in just a few minutes. Why didn't God tell him, listen, you, you can't do it. We're Roman citizens. You can't do this to us. Listen, let me tell you, to beat a Roman citizen like that, you risk crucifixion yourself. Uh, they could have been crucified. They could have been whipped. They could have lost their life uh, for doing to Paul and Silas what they did to them. But Paul doesn't say a word about it. Have you ever heard of the doctrine of adversity? Not many people have ever heard of the doctrine of adversity, but let me tell you something. When you take the gospel to the world of our day and it interrupts their comfort and their beliefs and their system, you're going to face opposition because of it. That wasn't just true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. And we have to we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to live out the gospel even though it means opposition from those that we work with, even those that we live around, maybe even those that are in our family? Now, that's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is this. I want you to look that when you carry the gospel, when you carry the message of God to our day, you can also experience God's intervention. Now, that's exactly what you see here. Not just the opposition, but there is God's intervention. Now, they beat Paul and Silas. They haul them up there to the jail, and uh, they're going to throw them into the jail, uh, but they're also going to do something else to them. Now, listen to this. Verse 23 of chapter 16. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, stocks happened to be this long board that had two indentions cut out, one for this foot and one for this, and they would stretch your legs apart as far as they could without pulling it out of joint, and they would uh, lock you in those stocks. Now, just think, they're up there, and that's earth that they've dug these these jail cells in, they're back in the inner part of that. It's dank. It's dark. It's, um, it's moist. Their backs are lacerated. They've been beaten. They're hurt. That's painful. I, I, beyond being painful, their legs are stretched apart in these stocks. They've been chained. Their hands are chained. Their hands are fastened so that, uh, you know, they can't rub their back. They can't uh, just think about your back being laid open and the agonizing pain of all of that. Well, there they are. And about midnight, in the middle of the night, now listen, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I just want to stop on that verse for a minute, and I want you to think about that. At midnight, why at midnight? 
I'm going to read something to you. I'm going to go back to Psalm 119, which is the longest Psalm, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. I'm going to go back to Psalm 119, and I want you to listen to a portion of Psalm 119. Think about this. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Now, this is what I think about Paul. In this excruciating pain, in this hurt, in this situation that he's in, that he could have avoided. I imagine he turns over and he looks around at Silas and he says, Now, Silas, if I drift off, if I by chance maybe even pass out, you wake me up when you think it's midnight because we're going to do this thing by the book. That even though I am in the cords of the wicked, I'm going to get up at midnight and I'm going to praise God. They were singing hymns. Do you notice this? Not about God. They're not singing hymns about God. They're singing hymns to God. There's a big difference in that. Both are great, but just think of the difference. We sing about God. We, we sing about Jesus. But they are here. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. They're in there singing, pray. And listen, he hasn't done one thing for them. They're still incarcerated. They're still, they're still with their feet in the stocks. They're sitting there with their backs lacerated. And we get what they're doing is they are singing praise to God. The interesting thing is this. All the prisoners were listening. It was a Gaither home gathering. They're in there. They're in there. You got Bill and Gloria. Listen, they're just singing to God. And everybody's out there in the audience just listening to it. Now watch it what happens. Because there's an interesting little word right here in verse 26. And the word is afne. Afne, suddenly, suddenly, which always gives you an indication God's going to do something. And what happens? There's a great earthquake. Now, I can take you through Scripture because every time you experience a great earthquake, the presence of God is there. You go back to Mount Sinai. There was a great earthquake there. God's presence settled on the mountain. You go, let's run it all the way to the New Testament, get in the Gospels, to the empty tomb. There was an earthquake. The presence of God is there. So you come to this, there's an earthquake. What's going on? The presence of God is there. God is there, and look at what happens. What happens in this earthquake when the doors come off their hinges, when they're open, I can, I can that's okay, I can understand that. But now here is the unusual thing. I expect earthquakes to open doors, but I've never heard of earthquakes opening the bonds, the handcuffs, the chains on a person. 
Now that's a, in the words of the great theologian Elvis, there was a whole lot of shaking going on for that to happen. Just a whole lot of shaking for that to take place. So there's this earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke, now isn't that interesting? This guy was the only guy sleeping that night. Paul and Silas were up singing. All the prisoners were listening to them. The jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, let me, let me tell you, you, because we always say Rome would have put him to death. They would have. But let me take that a step further. With Rome, it was all about dying honorably. For him to take his life would have been death honorably. Uh, for him to have gone and say all the prisoners have escaped would have been dishonorable. They would have killed him. And if he had done it that way, all of his family would have lost everything that they had. But if he took his life, the Romans would have considered it honorable and his family would have been able to keep the property. So in that moment, he does what any man would do. He thinks immediately of his family. They're going to kill me. I'll take my life. And that way, it will be a provision for them. But Paul crawls out. Paul cries out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I'm not so sure that that jailer understood I need to be saved from my sin. He's wanting to know, how can I just be saved? Paul's going to tell him the difference. He's going to say, what you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought them out. He said, uh, he, he, he brought them out and, and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now you're going to have two churches here. You're going to have the house church of Lydia and now you're going to have the house church of this jailer. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into the house, set food before them, and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrates set the, set the police, sent the police saying, let those men go. I shared with you that jails in that day and time really were not to hold you for five, ten years. They really just kept you there until they could determine whether or not they were going to let you go or just kill you. So they sent word, and they said, just, just let them go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to you to let you go. Therefore, Paul, come out now and go in peace. And Paul said, just hang on for a minute. They've beaten us publicly uncondemned men, and now he drops the bomb on them, who are Roman citizens, thrown us in prison, and um, do they now throw us out secretly? No, you let them come here publicly and take us out. Now, I think Paul's doing a couple of things here, and this is why didn't he say anything to them ahead of time? Now, listen to me carefully. I think Paul wanted them to understand, I am not a prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. 
and he lived it out. And that's really the second thing. He lived out the faith in the midst of persecution. In the midst of a tough, hard situation and circumstance, painful situation, he lived it out. Now, I think he was also going to give the church here new, nascent, baby, infant church here. I think he was going to give them some cover. I think he was going to say, don't bother with these new believers or the next place I get where there's a Roman magistrate, I'm going to let them know what you did to a Roman citizen. I think that was part of what Paul was doing, was trying to give the Christians here as much cover as he could. But now I have to come back and ask the question, are we willing to live out our faith under difficult circumstances. You see the circumstances that he lived his faith out in. We, uh, we have a hard time sharing the gospel with anybody because we are afraid somebody might get upset with us. And yet here is Paul in this place who comes and is willing to be beaten and thrown in prison for the sake of the gospel. And yet we're not able to go next door. We don't live out our faith today, tragically. In fact, the truth of the matter is we don't live what we talk about. We don't live what we say we believe. And because of that, we've lost our voice in a broken world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they don't only need to hear it, they need to see it in front of them. And so at the expense of his own back, Paul says, I'll live it out. I'll not only bring the gospel to you, I'll live it out in front of you regardless of the cost to me. How about you? What about you? Are you willing to live out what you profess that you believe, what you say that you believe? Are you willing to live that in front of a world that's worshiping all kind of goofy stuff? Let's bow our heads, if you would, here in, at Valleydale. Would you bow your heads with me and this is going to be a time of invitation for you to make a decision. Let me tell you, whenever you hear the gospel, whenever Paul preached, whenever Jesus spoke, he's giving an invitation. Paul was giving an invitation. The implication is there's a decision to be made. An invitation isn't just a neat little way you wrap up a Sunday morning service and you walk out. It's dealing with what you've just heard out of the Word of God. God's calling us to a decision. He's calling every one of us to walk the path that He's called us to, and while we walk that path, we take His gospel. Are we doing that? And are we willing to face opposition in order to take the gospel, and are we willing to live out the faith we profess, we believe? Father, in these moments here and there at Valleydale, we have a decision to make as to whether or not we're going to put our trust and our faith in you and believe that you are who you say you are, the Son of God, 
and that you died on a cross for us and that you were raised from the dead to give us new life and that we are called to put our faith and our trust in you and not in anything else, not how it works, not in our education, not in our money-making ability, not in anything else, but to put our faith and trust in you as Lord and Savior. There is one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those this morning that need to make that decision, that they're willing to make that decision. And I pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.